0: Chapter 9 of Spiders by Cecil Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wolf Spiders. Of the groups of wandering spiders which spin no snare but trust to speed and agility for their food, the Lycosidae or wolf spiders supply the best subjects for study. To begin with, they are very numerous at certain times of the year some species absolutely swarming in woods during May and June among the leaves which fell in the previous autumn during the summer months they are still in evidence but as winter approaches they rapidly disappear the Swift motion and predaceous habits have earned them the name of wolf spiders but though they sometimes occur in incredible numbers so that it seems impossible to avoid treading upon them they do not hunt in packs each one is entirely concerned with his own individual quarry they are moderate sized or large spiders commonly about half an inch long in this country though there are exotic species which attain an inch and a quarter and in build they are very unlike the garden spider being elongate and with the abdomen nothing like so globular. Their habits vary considerably. One genus, appropriately named Pirata, is semi-aquatic, living at the margins of rivers and ponds and able to run on the surface of the water. But most of the Lycosidae prefer dry land, the drier the better, heaths, sand hills, bare and stony stretches of soil even deserts are fertile in examples of this group most of the smaller species love the sunlight and it is often noticeable on a bright day when the ground seems to be alive with wolf spiders that a chance cloud obscuring the sun will cause them to disappear as if by magic some of the small lycosids seem to be absolute wanderers having no home at all, but spending the night under a stone or any casual shelter, while others dig a more or less temporary hole in the ground into which they carry their captured prey, and in which they take refuge on the appearance of an enemy. The large wolf spiders have permanent burrows from which they do not wander far, and in the mouths of which they spend most of their time on the lookout for passing insects let us first catch one of the small wolf spiders and examine it this is not a very simple operation with creatures which can run so swiftly but after a few attempts we induce a specimen to run up into a glass tube held in the line of its course we see it to be a long bodied spider thickly beset with hairs which entirely hide the integument of the abdomen. Its general hue will probably be a dark gray, and its abdomen will be decorated by a more or less distinct pattern, due not as in the garden spider to pigments in the skin, but to the coloration of the hairs. But look particularly at its eyes. A pocket lens will suffice to reveal that two of them are much larger, and much more businesslike in appearance than anything a Pura had to show these are directed forwards being placed at the upper angles of the perpendicular front face so to speak of the animal below them just above the jaws are four small eyes in a transverse row and behind them at some distance on the upper surface of the cephalothorax Are yet another pair of moderate size in some groups of spiders the eyes are not only small but have an indefinite dull ineffectual appearance here they are clear-cut glossy and convex sight apparently counts for something in the case of the Lycosidae and this is what we should expect a sedentary spider is informed of the whereabouts of its prey by the sense of touch through the trembling of the web but a wolf spider spins no web and is dependent on the keenness of its vision there is a very prettily marked English Lycosid which is very often found on sand Hills in situations particularly convenient for observation its name is Lycosa Picta and it is incidentally interesting as affording a good example of protective coloration for the sand hill variety is light colored and very inconspicuous when stationary on the sand while an inland variety not uncommon in the dark soil of heaths is of a much darker hue carefully scrutinizing the firmer sand of the dunes on a sunny June day I detect a number of small holes the burrows of a colony of these spiders and approaching cautiously I establish myself at full length at a distance of a yard or so on the side away from the Sun in such an attitude that I can observe closely for a considerable time without too much discomfort the minutes pass and nothing happens but I know that the cardinal virtue of the naturalist is patience and I wait presently the dark circle of one of the burrows is obliterated it is filled by the sand colored head of the spider coming up to prospect other heads appear and soon one spider bolder than the rest emerges bodily and remains for a minute motionless on the qui vive finding no cause for alarm it presently begins moving about stealthily and before long several members of the colony are busily exploring the neighborhood a cloud passes over the sun and all quickly disappear into their holes but this time without alarm for they come forth unhesitatingly when the sun shines again it is a fascinating sight to observe these little creatures pursuing their operations In absolute silence under my very eyes a few stealthy steps are taken the body being so moved that the battery of eyes is brought to bear upon different points of the compass a short quick run ensues followed by more cautious movements I am not fortunate enough to see the actual running down of a quarry but in time I note one of the colony bringing home an insect in its jaws so absorbed am I that I fairly jump when a horrified human voice close at hand observes he's in a fit I have excited the solicitude of a girl's school which has approached noiselessly over the sand on their afternoon promenade and stands gazing at me with as much fascination As I at the spiders I hasten to reassure them but the spell is broken and the seance is at an end not a spider is visible but I can still do one thing here is a good opportunity of finding out something about the burrows of these spiders in turf the investigation would be difficult But it is easy to operate in the tolerably firm sand where the colony has established itself. I insert a straw into one of the burrows as a guide to the exploration, and with a knife carefully begin to remove the sand immediately round it. It is lined, I find, by a very delicate and slight coating of silk no more than sufficient to keep the sand particles of its walls from falling down into the tube. I go down for an inch and a half or so and find that the tube ends blindly in a sort of silk-lined pocket, but no spider is there. This is mysterious, for I am pretty sure that my spiders are at home. I go to work upon another burrow but this time in a different way, digging it out bodily with its surrounding sand and placing it on a sheet of paper with which I am luckily provided for a detailed examination. I can now approach it from the side and by carefully removing the sand, lay bare the whole silken tube. As before, there is a straight perpendicular burrow ending blindly and uninhabited but at a point at about halfway down the tube I find a branch bending upward so that the whole tunnel is y-shaped and at the blind end of this branch I find the spider this observation suggests that the tunnels of some of our English wolf spiders may be more complex than was imagined At present nothing is known of their nature in the case of other species a little later in the summer the appearance of a troop of wolf spiders has undergone a marked change almost every individual will be found burdened with a circular bag of eggs attached firmly to its spinnerets and carried about with it in all its wanderings the cocoon is worth examination it is a rather flattened sphere with an equatorial line round it giving the effect of two valves an upper and a lower the operation of making it has very seldom been observed because it takes place in a closed retreat constructed for the purpose McCook was fortunate enough to see something of it in the case of a captive Lycosa which he kept in a glass jar partly filled with soil. Luckily, the spider dug its tunnel for cocooning purposes up against the side of the jar, so that its interior was visible. It was about an inch deep and fairly wide, and its aperture was closed with silk. Against the perpendicular wall of soil, a circular silken cushion, about three quarters of an inch in diameter, was spun And the eggs deposited in the center the edges of the cushion were then gathered up and pulled over the eggs and the bag thus formed was finished off with an external layer of spinning work on the two halves of the sphere the seam or equator being left thin for the exit of the young spiders the lycosa then attached the cocoon to its spinnerets and proceeded to bite away the silken sheet which sealed the burrow. The whole operation lasted about four and a half hours. Thenceforward, till the young are hatched, the wolf spider never quits her egg bag, which she carries about on all her expeditions, attached by threads to the spinnerets. Garden spiders die soon after laying their eggs and never see their progeny but here we have a case of maternal solicitude persisting for many days and the Peckhams seized upon it as a good subject for investigating the subject of the memory of spiders if the cocoon were removed from the spinnerets after how long an interval would it be recognized by the mother a pirata was selected for experiment it offered great resistance to the removal of the cocoon seizing it with its jaws and trying to escape with it when it had been taken away the mother displayed great uneasiness searching for it in all directions it was returned to her after an hour and a half when she received it eagerly and immediately attached it in the usual position from three others of the same species, the cocoons were removed and restored after thirteen, fourteen and a half, and sixteen hours, respectively. All remembered them and took them back immediately. But twenty-four hours seemed to be the extreme limit of their memory. After that interval, two of the mothers refused to have anything to do with their cocoons while the third only resumed hers slowly and without any enthusiasm after it had been placed before her seven times in succession some other species seemed to possess a rather longer memory but the experimenters found no Lycosid constant in her affection for so long a period as 48 hours we have said that Lycosid spiders see comparatively well Yet, if they are placed within an inch or two of their cocoons, they may be quite a long time finding them. This is very puzzling until it is considered that its habitual position is such that the spider never sees it. She never has seen it since its construction and does not in the least recognize it by sight. Spiders of other groups where the female remains near but detached from the cocoon are not at the same disadvantage and if the cocoon is removed to a short distance the mother will go straight to it and bring it back the wolf spider only knows the feel of the cocoon she may pass close by it without recognition but as soon as she touches it the cocoon is immediately resumed if the interval of separation has not been too great but is it necessary to restore to the spider her own cocoon will not that of another spider serve as well certainly it will a wolf spider will eagerly adopt the cocoon of a spider even belonging to a different genus if not greatly unlike her own in size nay even a ball of pith of the same size will be attached with alacrity to the spinnerets though if offered a choice between a cocoon and a pith ball, the spider, after some hesitation, selects the real article. One spider even accepted a cocoon into which a leaden shot had been inserted, making it many times its original weight. She could hardly crawl with her new burden, but stuck to it gallantly. And when several efforts to secure it to her spinnerets had proved ineffectual, she carried it about between her jaws and the third pair of legs. Again, we find the intelligence of the spider distinctly limited, but its powerful instincts are equal to all ordinary requirements. Nature does not, as a rule, play extravagant pranks, such as interchanging cocoons or substituting for them pith balls and leaden pellets. The famous tarantula is a wolf spider, though in America, unfortunately, the name has been quite wrongly applied to the members of an entirely different group. Everyone has heard of its deadly repute and of the myth that its bite can only be cured by the wild tarantula dance or tarantella. It is one of the large lycosids of Southern Europe These, as we have said, are much less nomadic than the smaller species, but have a permanent home from which they do not wander far afield. They prefer waste, arid places, and their burrows are simply cylindrical tubes with the upper portion lined by silk, the mouth being often surmounted by a sort of rampart of particles of soil mingled with small pieces of wood collected in the neighborhood, the spider lurks in the mouth of the tube where its glistening eyes can be distinctly seen if an insect ventures near it rushes out and secures it if alarmed it retreats instantly to the bottom of the burrow that most fascinating of all entomological writers J H Fabre made some observations on a tarantula of southern France which well deserve attention Colonies of the spider were numerous in his neighborhood, and he set himself to procure some specimens. Old writers assert that if a straw be inserted into the burrow, the spider will seize it and hold it so firmly that it may be drawn forth. Fabre found this method exciting, but uncertain in its results. Another plan which had been advocated was to approach warily and cut off the retreat of a spider by plunging the blade of a knife into the soil below it and so cutting off its retreat but this required very rapid action and was moreover apt to be prevented by the presence of stones in the soil he devised a new scheme he provided himself with a number of bumblebees in narrow glass tubes about the width of the spider burrows repairing to a tarantula colony he would present the open end of the tube to the mouth of a burrow the liberated bee seeing a hole in the ground exactly suitable for its own purposes would enter it with very little hesitation there would be a loud buzz and then instant silence inserting a pair of forceps into the hole Fabre would then withdraw the bee with the spider clinging tenaciously to it in all cases the death of the bee was instantaneous though the closest examination of its dead body revealed no wound now fabre was fresh from his wonderful studies of the habits of the solitary wasps which provide their young with insects stung in such a way as to cause paralysis but not death in their case, the problem was to secure food for their larva, which should remain fresh for many days. and instinct taught them to solve it in the most remarkable manner. The problem of the spider was different. It was a case of killing instantly or being killed. A merely wounded bee is as formidable as one unharmed. What Fabre desired to know was this, did the spider trust to one invariable deadly stroke in dealing with the bee as the solitary wasp according to its species had been found to act always precisely in the same way in paralyzing its victim to settle this point the spider must be seen at work and the obvious plan seemed to be to enclose a bee and a tarantula in a glass vessel and see what would happen but nothing happened at all the spider away from its burrow refused to attack the equally matched antagonists treated each other with the greatest respect and only evinced a desire to keep as far apart as possible even when placed in the same tube both acted on the defensive and no light was thrown on the problem but Fabre's ingenuity was equal to the occasion It occurred to him that to use as bait an insect of burrowing habits had been a tactical error. If instead of a bumblebee, some other insect, equally formidable, but not attracted by holes in the ground, were selected for the purpose, the spider might be induced to rush forth and reveal its method of attack. A large carpenter bee, Xylocopa, was chosen. And the mouth of the tube containing it was presented as before to the mouth of the tarantula tunnel the insect showed no disposition to enter the tunnel but buzzed in the tube outside many burrows were tested before any luck attended the investigator but at length a spider responded there was a fierce rush a clinch and the bee was dead the operation was too rapid to follow but the spider's fangs remained where they had struck embedded just behind the insect's neck the experiment was repeated until sufficient cases had been witnessed to establish the fact that the tarantula dealt no random stroke but with unerring precision and lightning rapidity plunged its fangs into the vital spot Fabre quaintly exclaims in French I was delighted by this murderer's knowledge I was compensated for my epidermis being roasted in the sun examples of the same species of tarantula kept in captivity threw further light on the habits of the group these large Lycosids live for years and are at first wanderers on the face of the earth they do not settle down and burrow till the autumn just after they have attained maturity these young adults are only about half the size they will eventually attain but the burrows are enlarged at need so that it is customary to find tubes of two sizes those of the newly established small females and those of the fully grown females of two or more years old curiously enough if disturbed they entirely decline to burrow unless it be the proper season for that operation but remain inert and helpless on the surface till they die. If, however, a tunnel is provided for them, they enter it at once and adapt it to their needs. The legs take no part in the burrowing process, which is entirely carried out by the jaws. With infinite labor, small particles of earth are dislodged and carried by the mandibles to be dropped at a considerable distance from the nest the parapet round the mouth of the tube is in nature usually quite a small erection but this seems to be due to the fact that only a small amount of suitable material is available in the immediate neighborhood and the spiders will not go far afield in captivity where abundance of material was supplied they attained a height of two inches small stones sticks And strands of wool cut into lengths of one inch and of various colors were placed within reach and all were used in building the parapet comparatively large pebbles were rolled up for a foundation and fragments of earth and pieces of wool entirely irrespective of color were bound together by irregular spinning work on sunny days the spiders would crouch behind the parapet With their eyes above its level. To distant insects they paid no attention, but if one approached within leaping distance it was pounced upon with unfailing accuracy. In due season the captives laid their eggs and enclosed them in the regulation cocoon which they attached to their spinnerets, never parting from them thenceforward, though considerably hampered by them in their movements up and down the tube. But a very remarkable change now took place in their behavior at the mouth of the tunnel. In sunny weather, instead of remaining, as Fabre puts it, accoudé on the parapet, they reversed their position, raised their egg cocoons with their hind legs, and slowly and deliberately turned them about so that every part in succession should be exposed to the sun's rays we now come to a remarkable habit possessed by all the Lacosidae. when the young are ready to leave the cocoon they find an exit at the thinner equatorial seam and proceed immediately to climb on to the back of the mother clinging firmly to her covering of hairs if a wanderer she carries them thus on all her expeditions if they stay at home they accompany her up and down her tube they are often dislodged indeed when alarmed they scatter for the moment but when the peril has passed they immediately swarm up the maternal legs to their former position now in the case of the tarantula it is seven months before they are able to fend for themselves meanwhile they eat nothing and look on with indifference while their mother feeds she not only carries them willingly but exhibits solicitude when deprived of them but she shows no discrimination as to her own offspring and is quite content with those of another spider the young when brushed off climb the legs of the nearest female and a spider may thus be laden with thrice her proper load without any protest they form a layer two or three deep and can then only find room by covering the whole of her back they nevertheless take care not to obscure her vision by covering her eyes two mother tarantulas each with her young on her back came into contact and a battle outrance took place one was slain but the double brood scattered by the conflict on its cessation climbed on to the back of the victor, and remained calmly in position while she proceeded to dine in leisurely fashion on the vanquished. In March, seven months after hatching, the young were ready to start life for themselves. Their first action was to climb to the highest points attainable, whence they set sail in the manner already described, and were borne gently away in the air. We can hardly leave the tarantula without saying something on the vexed question of spider venom. All over the world there are certain particular spiders whose bite is especially feared. Among them are the tarantula and the malmignet of southern Europe, the vancoho of Madagascar, the katipo of New Zealand, and the kahoosh of the West Indies quite an extensive literature has arisen around the subject but its perusal leaves one not much wiser than one was before circumstantial accounts of death from the bite of a spider are countered by the assertions of experimenters that they have allowed themselves to be bitten repeatedly by the same species without suffering any inconvenience there is at all events some basis for the popular view in the fact that all spiders possess a poison gland, which is analogous to that of the snake, inasmuch as it opens near the tip of the fang which is plunged into the animal attacked. In the case of the large, powerful spiders of the family Megalidae, and perhaps in the tarantulas, the effects of the bite on higher animals are not negligible and clearly exceed the results of a mere puncture a young sparrow and a mole bitten by fabre's tarantula in spots by no means vital died within a few hours but it is a very remarkable fact that many of the most dreaded spiders are neither large nor powerful the malmignate the von and the katipo and the kahuge are all members of the comparatively weak jawed Therididae. their only striking characteristic is vivid coloration all being marked with red spots it is probable that their deadly powers are almost entirely fabulous and that they have been singled out as particularly dangerous merely because of their conspicuous appearance the smaller species are certainly harmless as far as man is concerned And it is even disputed whether their poison plays much part in the ordinary slaying of insects the very inconsistent results of experiments may be due to some control exercised by the spider over the output of poison there is no proof that its ejection is automatic and it is quite possible that the spider is economical in its use or again in some of the cases of innocuous biting The supply of venom may have run short. End of chapter 9